Chapter Eleven, Part One of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Eleven, Part One. One thing is certain in our northern land: allow that birth or valour, wealth or wit, give each precedence to their possessor. Envy that follows on such eminence, as comes the limehound on the roebuck's trace, shall pull them down each one. Sir David Lindsay. Leopold, Grand Duke of Austria, was the first possessor of that noble country to whom the princely rank belonged. He had been raised to the ducal sway in the German Empire on account of his near relationship to the Emperor, Henry the Stern and held under his government the finest provinces which are watered by the Danube. His character has been stained in history, on account of one action of violence and perfidy, which arose out of these very transactions in the Holy Land. And yet the shame of having made Richard a prisoner, when he returned through his dominions, unattended and in disguise, was not one which flowed from Leopold's natural disposition. He was rather a weak and a vain, than an ambitious or tyrannical prince. His mental powers resembled the qualities of his person. He was tall, strong, and handsome, with a complexion in which red and white were strongly contrasted, and had long flowing locks of fair hair. But there was an awkwardness in his gait, which seemed as if his size was not animated by energy sufficient to put in motion such a mass. And in the same manner, wearing the richest dresses, it always seemed as if they became him not. As a prince he appeared too little familiar with his own dignity, and being often at a loss how to assert his authority when the occasion demanded it, he frequently thought himself obliged to recover, by acts and expressions of ill-timed violence, the ground which might have been easily and gracefully maintained by a little more presence of mind in the beginning of the controversy. Not only were these deficiencies visible to others, but the Archduke himself could not but sometimes entertain a painful consciousness that he was not altogether fit to maintain and assert the high rank which he had acquired. And to this was joined the strong, and sometimes the just, suspicion that others esteemed him lightly accordingly. When he first joined the crusade, with the most princely attendants, Leopold had desired much to enjoy the friendship and intimacy of Richard, and made such advances towards cultivating his regard, as the King of England ought, in policy, to have received and answered. But the Archduke, though not deficient in bravery, was so infinitely inferior to Cour de Leon, in that ardour of mind which wooed danger as a bride, that the King very soon held him in a certain degree of contempt. Richard, also, as a Norman prince, a people with whom temperance was habitual, despised the inclination of the German for the pleasures of the table, and particularly his liberal indulgence in the use of wine. For these and other personal reasons, the King of England very soon looked upon the Austrian prince with feelings of contempt, which he was at no pains to conceal or modify and which, therefore, was speedily remarked and returned with deep hatred by the suspicious Leopold. The discord between them was fanned by the secret and politic arts of Philip of France, 
one of the most sagacious monarchs of the time, who, dreading the fiery and overbearing character of Richard, considering him as his natural rival, and feeling offended, moreover, at the dictatorial manner in which he, a vassal of France for his continental dominions, conducted himself towards his liege-lord, endeavoured to strengthen his own party, and weaken that of Richard, by uniting the crusading princes of inferior degree, in resisting to what he termed the usurping authority of the King of England. Such was the state of politics and opinions entertained by the Archduke of Austria, when Conrad of Montserrat resolved upon employing his jealousy of England as the means of dissolving, or loosening at least, the League of the Crusaders. The time which he chose for his visit was noon, and the pretense, to present the Archduke with some choice Cyprus wine, which had lately fallen into his hands, and discuss its comparative merits with those of Hungary and of the Rhine. An intimation of his purpose was, of course, answered by a courteous invitation to partake of the archducal meal, and every effort was used to render it fitting the splendour of a sovereign prince. Yet the refined taste of the Italian saw more cumbrous profusion than elegance or splendour in the display of provisions under which the board groaned. The Germans, though still possessing the martial and frank character of their ancestors, who subdued the Roman Empire, had retained withal no slight tinge of their barbarism. The practicals and principles of chivalry were not carried to such a nice pitch amongst them as amongst the French and English knights, nor were they strict observers of the prescribed rules of society, which among those nations were supposed to express the height of civilization. Sitting at the table of the Archduke, Conrad was at once stunned and amused, with the clang of Teutonic sounds assaulting his ears on all side, notwithstanding the solemnity of a princely banquet. Their dress seemed equally fantastic to him, many of the Austrian nobles retaining their long beards, and almost all of them wearing short jerkins of various colours, cut, and flourished and fringed in a manner not common in Western Europe. Numbers of dependents, old and young, attended in the pavilion, mingled at all times in the conversation, received from their masters the relics of the entertainment, and devoured them as they stood behind the backs of the company. Jesters, dwarfs, and minstrels were there in unusual numbers, and more noisy and intrusive than they were permitted to be in better regulated society. As they were allowed to share freely in the wine, which flowed round in large quantities, their licensed tumult was the more excessive. All this while, and in the midst of a clamour and confusion, which would better become a German tavern during a fair than the tent of a sovereign prince, the archduke was waited upon with the minuteness of form and observance, which showed how anxious he was to maintain rigidly the state and character to which his elevation had entitled him. He was served on the knee, and only by pages of noble blood, fed upon plate of silver, and drank his tokay and Rhenish wines from a cup of gold. His ducal mantle was splendidly adorned with ermine, his coronet might have equalled in value a royal crown, and his feet, cased in velvet shoes, the length of which, peaks included, might be two feet, rested upon a footstool of solid silver. But it served partly to intimate the character of the man, 
that, although desirous to show attention to the Marquess of Montserrat, whom he had courteously placed at his right hand, he gave much more of his attention to his Spruch Sprecher, that is, his man of conversation, a sayer of sayings, who stood behind the Duke's right shoulder. This personage was well attired in a cloak and doublet of black velvet, the last of which was decorated with various silver and gold coins stitched upon it, in memory of the munificent princes who had conferred them, and bearing a short staff to which also bunches of silver coins were attached by rings, which he jingled by way of attracting attention when he was about to say anything which he judged worthy of it. This person's capacity in the household of the Archduke was somewhat betwixt that of a minstrel and a counsellor. He was by turns a flatterer, a poet, and an orator, and those who desired to be well with the Duke generally studied to gain the good will of the Sproch Sprecher. Lest too much of this officer's wisdom should become tiresome, the Duke's other shoulder was occupied by his Hofnar, or court jester, called Jonas Shoranka, who made almost as much noise with his fool's cap, bells, and bauble, as did the orator, or man of talk, with his jingling baton. The two personages threw out grave and comic nonsense alternatively, while their master, laughing or applauding them himself, yet carefully watched the countenance of his noble guest, to discern what impression so accomplished a cavalier received from this display of Austrian eloquence and wit. It is hard to say whether the man of wisdom or the man of folly contributed more to the amusement of the party, or stood highest in the estimation of their princely master. But the sallies of both seemed excellently well received. Sometimes they became rivals for the conversation, and clanged their flappers in emulation of each other with a most alarming contention. But in general they seemed on such good terms, and so accustomed to support each other's play, that the Sproch Sprecher often condescended to follow up the jester's witticisms, with an explanation, to render them more obvious to the capacity of the audience, so that his wisdom became a sort of commentary on the buffoon's folly. And sometimes, in requital, the Hofnar, with a pithy jest, wound up the conclusion of the orator's tedious harangue. Whatever his real sentiments might be, Conrad took especial care that his countenances should express nothing but satisfaction with what he heard, and smiled or applauded as zealously, to all appearance, as the archduke himself at the solemn folly of the Sprachsbrecher and the gibbering wit of the fool. In fact, he watched carefully, until the one or other should introduce some topic favourable to the purpose which was uppermost in his mind. It was not long ere the King of England was brought on the carpet by the jester, who had become accustomed to consider Dickon of the broom, which irrelevant epithet he substituted for Richard Plantagenet, as a subject of mirth, acceptable and inexhaustible. The orator, indeed, was silent, and it was only when applied to by Conrad that he observed. The genistar, or broom-plant, was an emblem of humility, and it would be well when those who wore it would remember the warning. The allusion to the illustrious badge of the Plantagenet was thus rendered sufficiently manifest. And Jonas Schoanka observed that they who humbled themselves had been exalted with a vengeance. 
honour unto whom honour is due, answered the Marquess of Montserrat. We have all had some part in these marches and battles, and methinks other princes might share a little in the renown which Richard of England engrosses amongst minstrels and mind-singers. Has no one of the joyous science here present a song in praise of the royal Archduke of Austria, our princely entertainer? Three minstrels emoliously stepped forward with voice and harp. Two were silenced with difficulty by the Sproch Sprecher, who seemed to act as master of the revels, and a hearing was at length procured for the poet preferred, who sung in high German stanzas, which may be thus translated. What brave chief shall head the forces, where the Red Cross legions gather? Best of horsemen, best of horses, highest head and fairest feather. Here the orator, jingling a staff, interrupted the bard to intimate to the party, what they might not have inferred from the description, that their royal host was the party indicated, and a full-crowned goblet went round the acclamation, Hoc Leib de Hazon Leopold. Another stanza followed. Ask not Austria why, midst princes, still her banner rise highest. Ask as well the strong-winged eagle, why to heaven he soars the highest. The eagle, said the expounder of dark sayings, is the cognizance of our noble lord the archduke, of his royal grace, I would say, and the eagle flies the highest and nearest to the sun of all the feathered creation. The lion hath taken a spring above the eagle, said Conrad carelessly. The archduke reddened, and fixed his eyes on the speaker, while the spruch spreaker answered, after a minute's consideration, The lord marquess will pardon me, a lion cannot fly above an eagle, because no lion hath got wings. Except the lion of St. Mark, responded the jester. That is the Venetian's banner, said the duke. But assuredly, that amphibious race, half nobles, half merchants, will not dare to place their rank in comparison with ours. Nay, it was not of the Venetian lion that I spoke, said the Marquess of Montserrat, but of the three lions passant of England. Formerly it is said they were leopards, but now they are become lions at all points, and must take precedence of beast, fish, or fowl, or woe worth the gainstander. "'Mean you seriously, my lord?' said the Austrian, now considerably flushed with wine. "'Think you that Richard of England asserts any preeminence over the free sovereigns who have been his voluntary allies in this crusade?' "'I know not, but from circumstances,' answered Conrad. "'Yonder hangs his banner, alone in the midst of our camp, "'as if he were king and generalissimo of a whole Christian army.' "'And do you endure this so patiently, and speak of it so coldly?' said the Archduke. "'Nay, my lord,' answered Conrad, "'it cannot concern the poor Marquess of Montserrat to contend against an injury.' patiently submitted to by such potent princes as Philip of France and Leopold of Austria. What dishonour you are pleased to submit to cannot be a disgrace to me. Leopold closed his fist, and struck on the table with violence. "'I have told Philip of this,' he said. "'I have often told him that it was our duty to protect the inferior princes against the usurpation of this islander.' 
but he answers me ever with cold respects of their relations together, as Surazine and Vassal, and that it were impolitic in him to make an open breach at this time and period. The world knows that Philip is wise, said Conrad, and will judge his submission to be policy. Yours, my lord, you can yourself alone account for, but I doubt not you have deep reasons for submitting to English domination. I submit, said Leopold indignantly. I, the Archduke of Austria, so important and vital a limb of the Holy Roman Empire, I submit myself to this king of a half an island, this grandson of a Norman bastard. No, by heaven! The camp and all Christendom shall see that I know how to right myself, and whether I yield ground one inch to the English bang-dog. Up, my lieges and merry men, up and follow me. We will, and that without losing one instant, place the eagle of Austria, where she shall float as high as ever floated the cognizance of king or kaiser. With that he started from his seat, and amidst the tumultuous cheering of his guests and followers, made for the door of the pavilion, and seized his own banner which stood pitched before it. "'Nay, my lord,' said Conrad, affecting to interfere, "'it will blemish your wisdom to make an affray in the camp at this hour, and perhaps it is better to submit.' "'to the usurpation of England a little longer than to—' "'Not an hour, not a moment longer!' vociferated the Duke, "'and with the banner in his hand, "'and followed by his shouting guests and attendants, "'marched hastily to the central mount "'from which the banner of England floated, "'and laid his hand on the standard spear, "'as if to pluck it from the ground. "'My master, my dear master,' said Jonas Schwanker, "'throwing his arms about the Duke,' "'Take heed! Lions have teeth!' "'And eagles have claws,' said the Duke, "'not relinquishing his hold on the banner-staff, "'yet hesitating to pull it from the ground. "'The speaker of sentences, "'notwithstanding such was his occupation, "'had nevertheless some intervals of sound sense. "'He clashed his staff loudly, "'and Leopold, as if by habit, "'turned his head towards his man of counsel.' "'The eagle is king among the fowls of the air,' said the Sprochsbrecher, "'as is the lion among the beasts of the field. "'Each has his dominion, separated as wide as England and Germany. "'Do thou, noble eagle, no dishonour to the princely lion, "'but let your banners remain floating in peace, side by side.' "'Leopold withdrew his hand from the banner-spear, "'and looked round for Conrad of Montserrat, but he saw him not.' for the Marquess, as soon as he saw the mischief afoot, had withdrawn himself from the crowd, taking care in the first place to express before several neutral persons his regret that the Archduke should have chosen the hours after dinner to avenge any wrong of which he might think he had a right to complain. Not seeing his guest, to whom he wished more particularly to have addressed himself, the Archduke said aloud that, having no wish to breed dissension in the army of the cross, he did but vindicate his own privileges, and right to stand upon an equality with the King of England, without desiring, as he might have done, to advance his banner, which he derived from emperors, his progenitors, above that of a mere descendant of the Counts of Anjou. And in the meantime he commanded a cask of wine to be brought hither and pierced, for regaling the bystanders, who, with tuck of drum and sound of music, 
quaffed many a carouse round the Austrian standard. This disorderly scene was not acted without a degree of noise which alarmed the whole camp. End of chapter 11, part 1